Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Thank you, Alan, and welcome. My name's Fred Paul, and you are watching ADH TV, the new home for common sense commentary in Australia. Stay tuned for a cracking show. I've got outgoing Victorian MP Tim Smith explaining why the people of his state look likely to give Dan Andrews, one of the worst politicians in Australian history, another four years in office. Or are they? Plus, we will speak to Canberran Stephen Senatiempo about what's getting under the skin of senior federal bureaucrats these days. And Wokewatch will look at how the worst council in Australia is treating the poor volunteers who just want to help kids play sport on the weekend. Plus, we will explain why so many West Australians are on the edge of their seats for the start of the Rip Curl Pro Finals surfing contest in California tomorrow. Well, if you could define modern politics in a single sentence, it would be overstate fake crises and understate the real ones. This way you can frighten the voters about things you can magically make disappear while avoiding responsibility for the things that genuinely cause hardship in the electorate. Incoming British Prime Minister Liz Truss gave us a good example of this in her debut speech outside 10 Downing Street yesterday. It was full of platitudes about the, quote, grit, courage and determination, unquote, of the British people. Here's the key quote. We now face severe global headwinds caused by Russia's appalling war in Ukraine and the aftermath of COVID. The UK faces headwinds all right, but they were caused by green energy policies, not Russia, and by the lockdowns, not the virus. Truss's speech also failed to mention the alarming rise in illegal immigration and the appalling state of the expensive National Health Service. You'd think that an incoming Prime Minister would have a, have a bit of licence to be honest about such things. But if she can't be honest now, she never will. She's going to be a good friend of Australia, but she's got a big challenge ahead. Australia's new Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, has played a similar game. Last week, while he and his union mates were conjuring up solutions to a non-existent employment problem, childcare workers were planning to go on a nationwide strike. Now, having kids in childcare is probably the most stressful stage of anyone's life. You're suddenly in charge of these young lives, you're probably new to it, and a few days a week, you or your wife or husband are dropping your precious cargo off at a childcare centre so you can work, go to work to make ends meet. That Anthony Albanese didn't head off today's childcare strike 
even while he was at a jobs summit last week, reveals how little he understands life in the hardworking middle class, the backbone of Australia, who Menzies dubbed the forgotten people. Like Truss, he is ignoring the real problems and inflating fake ones. Nothing illustrates this more than the impending energy crisis. The Australian newspaper couldn't have put it plainer yesterday, saying electricity and gas prices are at record highs and are, quote, set to remain high for years, driven by elevated fuel costs, coal station closures, and a looming shortfall in gas supply on the East Coast, unquote. Where will this lead? Well, that's easy. Fuel shortages and sky-high power bills for ordinary families and businesses. Just like the crisis Liz Truss is being forced to deal with, which, he's doing, which he is doing by capping prices and promising to tap more gas from the North Sea. But wait, part of this doesn't make sense. Supplies of gas, oil and coal are way short of demand, partly because of the war in Ukraine, and partly because governments around the world have been denigrating fossil fuels to appease swinging green voters for decades. This has pushed the price of these commodities to eye-watering levels. Gas is the highest it's been in 14 years and four times the price it was two years ago. Coal is the highest in history and 10 times the price of two years ago. If Australia is sitting on billions of tonnes of this stuff, why aren't we mining more of it? The, company, the companies that are, are rolling in it. Whitehaven Coal last month booked a record annual net profit of $2 billion. Its share price has tripled this year alone. The new federal government is, a, is amb ambivalent about mining resources. It knows blocking resources goes down badly in the regions, but is a vote winner in the party's inner city heartland. Which way should it go? Solve the real crisis or pretend to solve the fake one? Environment, Environment Minister Tanya Plibersek knows the answer. Last month, she rejected an application from Clive Palmer to open a coal mine near Rockhampton in Queensland because it would, quote, be likely to have unacceptable impacts to the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park and the values of the Great Barrier Reef World Heritage Area and National Heritage Place, unquote. No, it wouldn't. The reef has never been healthier. But that doesn't bother Plibersek. Extortionate energy bills are coming to Australia and they will cause havoc. Just like the lockdowns, they will cause businesses to go broke, families to struggle, and Australia's previously envious way of life will be severely diminished. We know it and politicians know it. But by the time the serious harm is felt, today's politicians will be retired on their pensions, enjoying life by the beach overlooking the ocean they've spent years telling you was going to rise and flood our coastline.
So imagine you're the secretary of an amateur football club trying to work out a roster for the barbecue this Saturday afternoon, making sure there are enough umpires and officials and calling various families to see if they can wash the team's jumpers after the game. It's a stressful, thankless job, especially at this time of year when the pressure of making the finals adds another layer of tension around the club. The last thing you'd be thinking about is your diversity quota or the gender balance of your committee. Yet this is exactly what the Yarra Council in Melbourne, recently named by the Herald Sun newspaper as the most woke council in all of Australia, is telling its amateur sports clubs to do. It sent a 54-question survey to sports clubs this week that had nothing to do with facilities or equipment, but instead asked, among other things, to show how the club, quote, ensures diversity in decision-making positions, unquote. So it's not enough that these mums and dads and community volunteers are teaching little Johnny and Jane the joys of competitive sport, the reward for effort and the feeling of belonging to a club. Because it all means nothing unless you've got a transgender lesbian on your committee agitating for boys to play in girls teams and vegan sausages to be added to the barbecue menu. Suburban sporting clubs are the type of group Irish writer Edmund Burke was famously referring to when he said in 1790, quote, to love the little platoon we belong to in society is the first principle of public affections, unquote. Meanwhile, in the Yarra subdivision of the Socialist Republic of Victoria, the last principle of public affection, which is the only one that counts, is towards enforced diversity and woke compliance. And if you don't comply, the threat is clear. You and your kids will have to find somewhere else to play your stupid games. Once again, the forces of wokeness reveal themselves to be joyless, petty authoritarians who were the last to get picked on sporting teams at school and have now turned their revenge into a career writing surveys for those who did. Well, there's an election coming up in Victoria in November that presents voters with an opportunity to turf out what former Prime Minister Tony Abbott recently called, quote, a seriously bad government, ethically challenged, competence challenged, and probably one of the worst governments Australia has ever had, unquote. Astonishingly, astonishingly though, the polls are suggesting that Victorians will decline this opportunity and give the government of Premier Dan Andrews another four years in office. This can't possibly be because they are satisfied with the government's performance. This is a government that locked its citizens down for the best part of two years because it wanted them to be terrified of what we now know was a relatively harmless virus. It stood back as the state police force acted like its private militia, arresting journalists who dared to ask legitimate questions, knocking old ladies over in the street, handcuffing pregnant women at home in their pajamas, and shooting peaceful protesters with rubber bullets. It was beyond coincidence that Black Lives Matter, the type of protest movement that the leftist government approves of, was granted permission to march in the streets while others were denied. When early in the pandemic, the government was forced to quickly implement a hotel quarantine program 
It ignored offers of help from the federal government and hired a dodgy private security firm from Sydney. The virus escaped and 801 people died. Now, more deaths are being attributed to the government's almost comical incompetence. 33 people died waiting for ambulances in Victoria from December 2020 to May this year. Andrews blamed these fatal delays on what he called, quote, a unique and very, very challenging set of circumstances, unquote. Well, if this is true, it wasn't necessary. The government knew in early 2020 that the state's emergency call service was underfunded. A report explaining this was finally published on Saturday morning when the state's citizens were typically preoccupied with the AFL finals. And yet Victorian voters look set to return Andrews in the election in November. To explain why, let's bring in Tim Smith, the state MP for the safe Liberal seat of Kew, who's not contesting in the election in November. Tim, welcome to the show. Fred, thanks so much for having me, mate. Tim, one of the most nauseating aspects of the lockdown was the way politicians read out the latest fatality statistics and expressed condolences to the deceased's relatives. Dan Andrews was a, a standout performer of this. But given that he tried to bury this latest report about 33 more deaths under his watch, is there now a shadow over his sincerity, do you think? Well, Fred, the most important thing that happened um, in Melbourne over the last week really now is that finally the state parliamentary press gallery have woken up to the fact that Andrews has been playing them on a break now for years, that they can see straight through his cynical manipulation of the media. And look, to be quite frank with you, as a politician and professionally recognising the talents of Daniel Andrews, who is obviously the lead politician in Victoria, you know, you've got, you got to pay credit where it's due. The guy has been master manipulator of the media through what has been an extraordinary period in the state's history on his watch and because of his government's negligence, 834 people have lost their lives. 834 people have died irrefutably because of his government's stuff-ups. 801 from the hotel quarantine disaster, which is frankly the greatest public administration failure in Australia's peacetime history, and then 33 further deaths caused by... Um, Esther, which is the emergency dispatch system in Victoria, failing to get an ambulance out uh, before um, the person who needed that ambulance died. Now, you, most normal politicians would not survive that. In a normal media market, most politicians wouldn't survive that. But in Woke Melbourne, with um, frankly a... And there are some notable exceptions, don't get me wrong. Um, Peter Credlin being one and... Um, your show, your show being another, and um, you know, there's a number of others that write for various publications out of Melbourne. So it's not everyone, but for a, a great majority of the press in Victoria, they have let Andrews literally get away um, with death on his watch. And yeah. finally, now we saw on the weekend. Yeah, finally, I, I think we um, saw. I think we Rachel... saw the media go, "You're playing this on a break. You've got to be kidding us!" Releasing this report on a Saturday afternoon in the middle of the AFL grand, uh, AFL finals. How absurd. 
I think, I think we should add Rachel Baxendale of The Australian to that list. She's done a sterling job as well. But tell me, what has the response, this change in the attitude in the media, can you describe it to me? Can you elaborate on that? Well, they finally have realised that um, this guy is all spin and, and, and a pretty nasty spinner at that. So the fact that he didn't come out on Sunday or Monday and then turned up on Tuesday to answer for this... They were absolutely furious with him, the press, and, the, and quite rightly so. Um, the Liberals called him a coward. That was appropriate. Uh, called on him to front up. That was appropriate. And the media, quite rightly, across the board, whether it's nine newspapers or News Limited or anyone, it was universal. Uh, everyone called on Andrews to front up and explain why, one, he announced this on a Saturday, and two, why 33 people had died on his watch. So why are polls saying Victorians are on track to return the government? Do you think there'll be a delayed response to this change in the media attitude towards him? Well, look, I think the media realise that, you know, this is a relatively long-term government now and they are starting to take the media and the public's support for granted, that they're treating them like fools. So I hope over the next three months in the lead-up to the election, the media do a lot better than they have in the past of holding him and his government to account. And your viewers outside of Victoria might not know this, but there's been some significant resignations in the lead up to this election. James Molino, the former Deputy Premier, Martin Foley, the former Health Minister, Martin Bakula, uh, the former Attorney General um, and the former Minister who was responsible ultimately for the signing of the contracts for the hotel quarantine debacle. Well, they're not contesting this election. So the Andrews government's getting pretty thin now in terms of talent. You've got Andrews, you've got the Deputy Premier Jacinta Allen, a few others, but they don't bat very deep. So Andrews is going to have to put a lot of ministers into witness protection in the lead up to the election. It's going to be a very presidential election. Uh, and if Andrews keeps treating the media like this, um, I, I think that the polls will shift because the media are, are going to shift their view of him. Well, there was an interesting piece uh, in the Herald Sun a couple of days ago by Shannon Deary that you probably read. And it said that a surprising coalition win was actually plausible. Deary said it had happened before, obviously, in 1999, when Jeff Kennett lost unexpectedly to Steve Brax. Then, as now, the incumbent premier was polarising, senior ministers had resigned, as you just pointed out, and there was a health crisis going on. So do you think Deary has a point? Did, I mean, is it possible that the, the coalition could win? Look, um... The Labor Party or the Liberal Party can win any election in Australia. Let's be frank. It's a two, we have a very unique voting system in this country where it's compulsory, uh, and in Victoria it's compulsory preferential voting, um, unlike New South Wales. So Victoria's voting system is just like the federal parliament. So at the end of the day, the system is designed for either the coalition or the Labor Party to win it. Uh, I, I think that the coalition obviously has a very na narrow path to victory given that they are starting so far behind a majority. But that is not to say uh, it can't be won because what tends to happen at a state level in particular is that people make up their minds very, very late in the piece. Now, 1999 in Victoria and 2010 in Victoria are both very good examples of where the incumbent government was looking for um, a, a, a third term for the Kennett government and a fourth term for the Brumby government. No one foresaw that they were going to lose. And in the last week, all the undersiders turned up and voted for the opposition. And the government changed. 
And at a state level, unlike a federal level, the swing required to shift a whole bunch of seats um, is not that great. So a 5 or 6% swing against this government and they'll be in minority. That doesn't necessarily mean the Liberals will win, but it will mean that Labor will, for their fourth term, have to govern with the Greens, for example. And we all know what happens to Labor-Greens government. So, look, Deary has a point. Um, I, I think, you know, I hope he's right. Um, um, but I think there is a strong likelihood that Labor will go into minority. They've only got to lose 13 seats to go into minority. And I think by the time you factor in the Teals, the Greens and the Liberals, who will certainly pick up seats in the outer suburbs and in the country, um, the electoral math, math at the end of this election could be very interesting. Well, here's a policy area that the uh, coalition opposition could absolutely get some runs on the board over, and it's about energy. The Australian energy market operator last week warned that Victoria will face rolling blackouts in two years. This will be caused by coal-fired power plant closures and increased demand. Now, apart from its plan to float giant windmills off the coast, does the government have a plan to ensure the state's lights stay on in 2024, Tim? No, no, and, 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 but no government does in this country at the moment, whether it's uh, the coalition government in New South Wales, um, the Labor government in Victoria, or the federal um, Labor government in Canberra. Um, we are living on uh, another planet. Our, our political class are living on planet Zog with regards to energy security. Um, and look, all it's going to take is for yet another coal-fired power station to close down. Your lawn is scheduled to close down uh, by 2028 in Victoria. Uh, there are coal-fired power stations that are scheduled to close sooner than that in New South Wales. Once that happens, the pressure on the grid will be so immense that the lights will go off. Um, people won't be able to run their air conditioners when it's 40 degrees in the middle of January. Um, that's when the rubber's going to hit the road and the, the Australian people are going to work out that they've been literally sold a pup by the political class that, um, and I think Peter Dutton said this, and he's right. Now, if we could flick a switch tomorrow and have green power that was reliable with storage and dispatch capacity um, equal to or greater than coal-fired power stations, then you don't think we would have done it by now? You know? That's right. You know, yeah. I'm, 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 an, I'm, an, I'm, an, I mean, I'm an agnostic when it comes to what is, generation, what is generating electricity. Like, I actually don't care whether it's coal, whether it's gas, whether it's nuclear, whether it's a propeller or a solar panel on the roof, I don't care. But what I do care about is its reliability and that it's in Australia, controlled by Australians for the use of Australians. And you see, we're seeing what's happening in Europe and Britain at the moment where you're relying on another country for your energy. It's an absolute catastrophe. We've got this unique and, uh, you know, huge opportunity to be, like, to remain self-sufficient in energy and we're throwing it down the drain because this trans, this so-called transition to green power, um, or what is being proposed is is implausible. It can't happen. You know, a 43% emissions reduction cut by 2030, that will result, which is about to be legislated federally. Well, we all know what's going to happen. Um, we, we can't survive without coal-fired power stations. I'm not saying that they're the be-all and end-all forever. But I'm simply saying that unless we go nuclear, there's nothing that the re in the renewable space at the moment um, that is re as reliable, as cheap um, as a coal-fired power station. And th they're just facts. That is not an ideological rant. They're, they're just cold, hard 
Facts. Well, here's another fact. Nothing we do is going to change the weather either, Tim. Now, quickly before no, we go. <laughs> quickly before we go, let's, talk, let's have a quick word about British politics because you worked for British MP David Davis when he was Shadow Home Secretary during the early 2000s. Incoming Prime Minister Liz Truss has announced a massive reshuffle of ministries. The young Kemi Badenoch got trade, which is the one that's important to us here in Australia in the age of Brexit. How do you think she'll go? Oh, Kemi, Kemi Badenoch is a legend. I mean, personally, I would have loved to have seen her in education um, where she could have really gone after the wokes in the British education establishment. But for Australia, um, she's terrific. Um, look, the Truss administration will be great for Australia. Liz Truss is a great friend of Australia. She was recently in Australia when she was Foreign Secretary. She was in Sydney. She was in Adelaide. Look, the the, the Indo-Pacific tilt, as it's called in Britain, um, we would understand it as the Brits re-engaging east of Suez. Uh, that's not just a Boris Johnson press release. Uh, that is real. Liz was Foreign Secretary through all that. Um, her government is going to be pro-Australian, um, uh, certainly very interested in this part of the world. Liz Truss is a China hawk. Um, she is absolutely pro-Commonwealth, particularly Australia, Canada, New Zealand, um, and growing the relationships both economically but in, most importantly from a security perspective because the Brits have finally woken up to how dangerous China is to global peace and security. Well, maybe, maybe we'll get around to selling her some more coal and gas while we're at it. Tim Smith, thanks so much for your time. Thanks, Fred. That's Tim Smith, whose rock-steady liberal principles will be sorely missed during the coalition, by the coalition during the election campaign in the next few months. Now, home mortgagors around the nation had the screws tightened again yesterday when the Reserve Bank added another 0.5% to the cash rate, which will eventually be passed on in mortgage interest. This is on top of the increase to the cost of living and the impending increases to power bills when the cost of the federal government's obsession with the renewables kick in. Plus, the fuel excise, otherwise known as a tax on driving, will increase by 23 cents per litre on October 1, after the Morrison government generously reduced the tax for six months in an attempt to win the last election. The cash rate dropped to a record low of 0.1% in November 2020 and stayed there until May this year, when it was raised to 0.35% and has been rising ever since. In the middle of that period, when it was at 0.1%, however, Reserve Bank Governor Philip Lowe said, quote, it is still plausible that the first increase in the cash rate will not be before 2024, unquote. Some people took that as a sign to buy property at a time when the market was running hot. But home prices are now falling and have done across the country for three months now. This is a double whammy for home buyers who risked borrowing a lot against a house which is probably now worth significantly less. I'll speak with my regular Wednesday guest, Stephen Senatiampo, about this in a minute. But first, the new head of the Federal Public Service, Glyn Davis, has urged the members of the federal bureaucracy to stop being such organisational automatons and learn to be a little flexible and dynamic. In a speech to, the, to a seminar held by the Institute of Public Administration yesterday, he said, quote, if you can share ideas, empower others 
and draw on diversity of opinion and experience to achieve a shared goal, then you are exactly the leaders we need in the Australian public service, unquote. To find out how this went down in the Canberra public service community, let's bring in Stephen Senatiampo, the host of The Breakfast Show on Canberra's 2CC. Stephen, welcome back. G'day, Fred. Stephen, how did this appear? Absolutely extraordinary. <laughs> Tell me how it went down, mate. Well, I mean, God forbid the lanyard wearers should have to operate like the rest of us out in the real world. I mean, it's just, um, um, oh, look, I, I think there's going to be a massive backlash to this. I mean, reading uh, some of the social media boards, it's, um, uh, I think they're disappointed that an incoming Labor government is going to actually make them work for a living and do what they should be doing. Um, but I, I, look, I think this could lead to a mass exodus from the, uh, the Australian public service. They'll all have to get jobs in the, uh, in the real world which might alleviate some of the so-called skill shortage we have at the moment. But then when they realise that out in the real world, it's even tougher again, maybe they'll go flooding back. I don't know, I don't know how this is going to end up. <laughs> well, tougher again, stacking shelves at Woolworths, I'd suggest, mate. How, yeah. <laughs> how deeply entrenched is this, uh, is this culture, though, in the, in the public service? Oh, absolutely. And, I mean, anybody that's had to deal with the public service on a face-to-face on a -face basis knows just how tough it is to get outside of that computer says no mentality um, and find a little bit of flexibility. Um, I, I get the sense that there is a bit of a shift. I, I spoke to Hank Jongen from um, uh, Services Australia this morning. They're actually putting specialist people in to try and help people with their transition to aged care facilities and the like. So um, I, I think ultimately this is a good thing. But um, uh, the public service, particularly here in Canberra, is so entrenched in its ways and so uh, fixated on this silo mentality where they don't move outside of their own little cubicle and they don't, um, if it's not written on their little notebook in front of them, they don't know what to do, um, is part of the problem why, firstly, our public service is so bloated at the moment, why it's so inefficient and why something like this needs to happen. I think it, it, I'm, I'm amazed that it's happened under the Albanese government, but I applaud it, I've got to say. Well, I remember back in 2019 after uh, Scott Morrison won, he called the senior public servants together and read them the Riot Act, if I'm not mistaken. He said, you know, we're the elected representatives. You're the bureaucracy. You do what we tell you to. Didn't work out too well for ScoMo, did it? No, it certainly didn't. Um, but it's, um, look, it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out here in Canberra. Um, it's, it, look, the reality is that... Uh, Senior public servants here got a 3.25% pay rise just recently, so they're sitting pretty when it comes to their money. Um, but I guess the, the trade-off is going to be whether or not they're happy to put up with the kind of rules that the rest of us have to operate by um, in order to earn their big paychecks for not doing much at all. Yeah, let's see them earn it, Stephen. Now let's talk about interest rates and the cost of living, or as some people call it, inflation. Should people feel misled mm. by Philip Lowe's statement that uh, that it was plausible that uh, interest rates would stay low, Stephen? Well, yeah, look, yes, they should feel misled, but I don't think they should be surprised. The reality is that interest rates were never going to stay as low as they were. Um, we're now hearing that the, the Reserve Bank, and most economists are suggesting that they're going to try and get the cash rate up to somewhere between 3 and 4%, which is realistically... Not that, not that high in the overall scheme of things, but when you consider what we've been uh, experiencing for the last couple of years, it's uh, a massive jump. So we all knew it was going to go back to this, but you know, when the, the head of the Reserve Bank comes out and says, look, 
you'll be fine until 2024. Most people would be expected to believe that. Um, maybe we should have been smarter, but look, I just think that the biggest problem now is, is that interest rates are going up as they should and as they need to. But the current government who promised us that in the lead up to the election that they would do something about cost of living now seem to have abandoned every single promise when it comes to cost of living. Um, you know, the electricity prices were supposed to come down by $275 a, a year. Mine went up on the 1st of September by 375 So it's more than 100% turnaround. Now, I'm a single bloke, so that's not going to bother me too much. But I imagine what families are going through and how much their energy bills are going through the roof. Petrol's going to go up in um, 20 days' time by 20, uh, I think it's 22 cents a litre when you take the GST into account. Um, finally, we're seeing produce prices start to come down a bit because a lot of that was impacted by weather and the like. But I don't know how, how the average family is going to cope. And there doesn't seem to be any appetite from this government to get on and do anything about reducing the cost of living. Well, that's exactly right. The other thing that there that is going to hit families is energy prices. And I don't see any urgency yeah. at all from Canberra about fixing that. No, in fact, they, they seem to be held bent on making it worse because Chris Bowen, and let's face it, Chris Bowen's one of those guys that should be working in the public service because he's got no talent whatsoever, is hell bent on going down this renewables rabbit hole. He's, he's convinced himself that it is actually the cheapest version of electricity. Um, here in the ACT, we pretend that we operate on 100% renewables, despite the fact that we only produce 5% of our own energy. The rest of it comes across the border and nearly 80% of that is produced by coal. So I, I don't know how you do that maths to work out 100% renewables. But um, it, we were told, it's interesting, when, when we were told that energy prices were coming down, we were told here in the ACT that unlike every other jurisdiction, because we operate on 100% renewables, our energy prices will continue to go down. Well, as I said, mine went up by more than 100% of what they were supposed to go down by. Well, getting back to interest rates, they peaked at 18% in 1990 under Labor Treasurer Paul Keating. In November that year, he revealed a shocking insensitivity towards ordinary families by describing the tough economic conditions as, quote, the recession we had to have. And this government seems similarly blind to the plight of ordinary working families. Some commentators have said the combination of falling house prices and rapidly rising rates could be worse than 1990. Do you think we're heading for a repeat of, of those awful days, Stephen? Look, I don't think we'll get to the interest rate levels that we did back in those days. And I don't think we're going to get up around the 17, 18%. But the impact of it, I think, will be far worse for a number of reasons. The other levers that the government has at its disposal, it doesn't. Se it seems reluctant to pull. Uh, we've got international factors that are outside of our government's control that don't look like they're going to sort themselves out in any time soon. And we've got a population that doesn't know hardship. You know, back in the 80s, we had people that remembered what it was like to go through tough times. We've never been through tough times. So the, the current generation hasn't. So I think it's going to be far worse because our, our ability to deal with it is going to be greatly diminished. That's a very good point. That's, but that's quite a dramatic change in Australian uh, society over, over one generation, really. But speaking of Paul Keating, he and former ACTU boss Bill Kelty have backed away from their original plan for compulsory superannuation to go to 15%, which is what they originally hoped would happen by 2000. Mm. 
The government, however, is still contemplating pushing it to 15% in its second term. This would make sense if the scheme was popular, but this compulsory superannuation scheme has been in place for 30 years now, and not a single country anywhere in the world has looked at it and gone, well, that's a good idea, we should emulate that. But instead, Aussie workers have had more than three trillion of their own money locked up for decades, and much of it is funding pet infrastructure projects for former union officials. Stephen, at a time when cash is hard for working families to come by, shouldn't the government be allowing them to keep some of their own hard-earned now rather than locking it up? Absolutely. I mean, it's and that's the point. And that's, um, you know, I, I, uh, I spoke to Angus Taylor, the shadow treasurer, last night um, uh, in a social uh, setting, and he made the point. He said, the thing we've got to remember is this is our money. Superannuation is our money. It's not the government's money. It's not for them to spend how they want it to. Now, I understand that with an ageing population, our welfare system is going to be under under great pressure and we need something to alleviate that. We need to somehow fund our own retirements. But the superannuation system is not doing that. I mean, how often do you pick up the newspaper and find stories to say that nobody is going to have enough money to retire on? So it's not working. So we should be in a position where we can actually use that money ourselves in the meantime um, or find some better way to invest it because, I mean, clearly it's not being invested particularly well at the moment. And then, of course, when you look at the fees that are being ripped out, you look at these industry super funds, which, funnily enough, seem to be the better performing ones. But then because they're run by the unions, you don't know where the money's going. I mean, I know some of it gets siphoned off to run some newspaper or whatever that they've got set up to you know, run their own propaganda arm. Um, it's been an absolute farce. But you know, I mean, imagine what you could do if you had 15% of your own money back in your pocket. Yeah, well, I mean, you mentioned that they perform well. One of the reasons they perform well is the money is so secure. That money is locked up for decades. You know, a, 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 an amateur, a, a primary school kid could invest that money and still yeah. get a decent return because it's... Anyway, before you go, there was a job summit held in Canberra last week at which some of the smartest people in the country discussed how to smooth over industrial relations under this new worker-friendly Labor government and keep employers happy. But they weren't smart enough to head off a nationwide childcare strike. I imagine this strike has caused havoc among working families who had nowhere to drop their kids off this morning. Stephen, are childcare workers underpaid and should the federal government have seen this one coming? Um, look, are they underpaid? I, I think there are a lot of industries out there where we don't, we don't pay for what we expect. Um, yeah, look, realistically, I mean, given how important the role is, they probably should be paid more. Yeah, the federal government should have seen this coming. But isn't it amazing that we had Albo's job of palooza, as I like to call it, the job <laughs> summit, when we've got the lowest unemployment rate we've had in God knows how long, somehow we need to work out how to get people jobs when they've already got them. But isn't it interesting that we've got a Labor government comes in under the most left-wing prime minister we've had since Gough Whitlam, and all of a sudden there's this explosion of industrial uh, action across the country. Um, I thought, you know, it was Labor governments that would be able to supposed to put a lid on this and stop this kind of thing from happening. But, um, yeah, I, look, it, it's, it was an absolute farce. It was a two-day talk fest. And David Littleproud, the Nationals leader, was roundly criticised for taking part in it. And his view was, well, nobody's representing regional Australia at this thing. Somebody's got to go along and have a voice. Well, I spoke to him after the first day and said, well, how's it going? He said, it's an absolute waste of time. I said, well, you know, we all did tell you that beforehand. He said, well, 
yeah, but I thought it was better to be in the room than not. But it's been a waste of time. Nothing's been achieved. And, you know, I mean, when you, you have a, a job summit and you leave the four big banks out of it, some of the biggest employers in the country, and say, no, not interested in hearing what you've got to say, but the single mother's network is invited, you know that something's not amiss here and something's not right. And then, you know, and I've interviewed her a couple of times. There's a woman called Georgie Dent who runs a website called The Parenthood does a great job, you know, a blog for mothers and how to deal with their babies and things like that. She was there at a job summit. Um, you had 25% representation from the unions when less than 10% of the population are members of unions these days, in the private sector anyway. Uh, it was absolutely extraordinary. And then, of course, you have the Business Council of Australia, who pretends to represent business but doesn't. You've got the National Farmers Federation, who pretends to represent farmers but doesn't. Yet a lot of people there just for show, sitting in a circle and shaking hands and standing in front of flags other than the Australian one, all to achieve nothing, to say, well, we've got 36 recommendations. We won't do anything with any of them, but look at this lovely, shiny document that we prepared before. <laughs> Absolutely extraordinary. Nothing like a shiny document to keep them entertained in Canberra, Stephen. Stephen mm, Senatiembo, thanks a lot for your time. See you next week, Fred. That's Stephen Senatiempo, the host of The Breakfast Show on Talkback Radio 2CC in Canberra. Now, before I go, the final event of the World Surfing Pro Tour starts tomorrow, and there is one finalist whose victory would have special significance for a lot of people. He's West Australian Jack Robinson, who is a mere two heats away from being the first West Australian to win the world title and the first Aussie male since Mick Fanning in 2013. Fellow West Australian Taj Burrow came close on a few occasions during his 19 years on the tour from 1998 to 2016, and before him, the great Ian Cairns dominated the fledgling tour of the 1970s. Like in Aussie Rules footy, West Australian surfing has always lived in the shadow of the more glamorous and prosperous East Coast, despite WA having some of the best waves and surfers in the world. As a West Australian-born surfer myself, I know what a Jack Robinson title would mean. I was lucky enough to interview Jack in 2010 when he was a freakishly talented 12-year-old. It was the first time he ever made the cover of a magazine. The final event of the World Tour at Trestles in Southern California starts tomorrow. Only the best five surfers from the year compete. The surfer who finished fifth surfs off against fourth. The winner of that heat meets third and so on. Robinson, shown here practicing at Trestles this week, is at second, which means he's only two heat wins away from bringing home the silverware. If he makes it to the final, it will be against Brazilian Felipe Toledo, which won't be easy. Toledo himself is overdue a title win, and the relatively small waves at Trestles will give him a slight advantage. And good luck also to Ethan Ewing from Queensland, who qualified for the Pro Tour two years ago, the same year as Robinson, and arrives at Trestles in third place. The surfing and the drama should be intense. Well, that's all for me tonight. Thanks for your company. Don't forget to tune back in tomorrow night at 8 p.m. for the great Alan Jones giving a voice to the voiceless here on ADH-TV. And I'll see you straight after him at nine o'clock. Good night.